Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Hello, and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm Raquel, a human factor specialist here at Sophic, and I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, our Director of Applied Health and Performance. Hi, pleasure to be here. Uh, just uh, so the folks at home know a little bit about me and, and kind of why I'm weighing in on this podcast, uh, I have over 20 years experience uh, supporting space medicine, uh, maintaining the health of the astronauts, uh, either on shuttle missions and then on the International Space Station. And when you have to take care of astronauts who are on a mission, it's almost exclusively telemedicine. <laughs> so we've worked on a lot of components of this. I understand some of the complications, but I'm, I'm really interested in discussing the topic today about how we apply it here on Earth. Awesome. And uh, Ms. Rachel Stats, one of our human factor specialists. There we go. While I'm not as experienced as uh, Jen here, I still have some background in understanding the human factors of medical devices and trying to understand the populations and how to design for um, particular users. Awesome. So our topic today um, regarding like telemedicine and the challenges faced by elderly and disadvantaged populations kind of spurred from one of our client interactions we had almost three years ago now, if we can all believe it, um, <laughs> where one of our clients had this remote healthcare monitoring smartwatch in which their target population was the elderly being 65 plus. And so as we were starting to do user testing, we kind of noticed that many of them couldn't even put the watch on to begin with. Um, so that was a major thing because they needed to have the watch on for it to continuously do the monitoring. Um, and that was just due to like their own struggles with um, carpal tunnel or arthritis, unfamiliarity with the device as well. Many of them still just use classic normal <laughs> watches. Um, and as well as just kind of like, they're not knowing and not understanding of the benefits that came with telemedicine. You know, they were still very, and this was kind of like during the height of COVID and the, the idea of the product was to kind of help them uh, remove that patient and doctor interaction to keep them more safe. But a lot of them still, you know, wanted to go, it it felt better for them and they felt more secure in speaking to a doctor face-to-face -face and kind of them having them explain them the results versus seeing it on a screen. You know, a lot of them were like, you know, I don't want to see the exact details. I'd rather it say I'm good, I'm bad, or when do I need to call my doctor? <laughs> so um, yeah, that's kind of like where we, we spurred this topic. Um, so just kind of thinking about like, you know, what is telehealth exactly and telemedicine and how is it different from traditional healthcare? Yeah, that's a, that's a fabulous use case. Right? It, it has actually a ton of complexity in there that you touched on. So I, I'm going to pull on a couple strings and, and see what we, see where the conversation takes us about it. But you're right. So this was an, a, a use case where you had a very specific technology um, that was engaging with the individual to deliver data to their medical provider. Um, and then now the, the devil is in the details in that one, the technology was hard for the demographic, the, the elderly, to engage with. And you talked about the multiple reasons why. Um, one of them was just physically. 
like, how do I get this device on? I've got other complexities. It's not easy for me to handle. It's a little small. It's a little complicated with the buckle. Um, so yeah, you, you definitely pointed on some things. If you're going to put technology on a human to allow data to be collected so a healthcare provider can do their medicine, um, you know, medical assessment and deliver something actionable back to the patient, it really has to be a technology the individual can use, you know, and interact with properly. Um, but the other element was really about, you know, trust in technology. Um, and there's, this is like this huge cultural shift, right? And it might be more extreme for people who are less familiar with technology just to begin with. So they're starting from a very different place. Um, but I think, yeah, just starting to assess all the pieces that could really establish what telehealth is. I think that's a great question and how much can be done in different phases or in different ways to help people change over time. Now the pandemic was definitely an extreme forcing function. Um, that almost overnight shifted the paradigm in a lot of different ways. And I think we can touch on elements of that that kind of pushed us into um, engaging in, I'm not so sure accepting is the right word yet, but at least engaging in telehealth because the alternative was what? Almost nothing. So, and I definitely want to give Rachel an opportunity to weigh in on, on her kind of perspective on both maybe just the narrow field of the technology at this point and the usability. And then we can go into kind of like the bigger cultural domain, um, which is going to pull out a lot of the psychological issues you need to be aware of if you want this to be successful. Yeah, that's great points, Jen. I was, when we were talking, I was thinking mostly of uh, Raquel's point of people wanting a clear answer versus numbers, which they can't um, interpret well with, or uh, don't want to interpret uh, without uh, some outside force. Um, I'm think, and I'm thinking to like COVID tests and things like that. Those are sometimes hard for re to read and confusing for people, particularly if they go too long or too short and um, confused. And it's like, why don't you just tell me yes or no? <laughs> what are these lines <laughs> and things like that? So I kind of want to dive into that for uh, get your opinion on th that as well. Yeah, that's a, those are great insights about th the data, like in having to make a decision. I think Raquel can weigh in here on this particular use case too. Um, I, I think it's underestimated how much you have to sit down and think about not only the data you need to collect, which is usually like being driven by the technical side, say even the medical side, what biomarker could be heart rate, could be a, a more complex like ECG you'll see come out of technology now, wearable, you know, technology, technology, even like the Apple watch. Um, respiratory rate, um, O2 saturation were all important biomarkers, especially with respect to the pandemic. But to Rachel's point, they are not necessarily interpretable to the individual who's wearing the technology, the patient in this case. And that can be very scary. And it's also very um, disorienting. Like, okay, well, what do you want me to do now? There's now, you know, I'm doing these other things. I have to understand what the, all these numbers mean. It can be very overwhelming. So I think when you think about what data you're going to collect, where that data and to whom that data is going to go to, to do something with something meaningful. Um, if it's going back to the patient, and this is where tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning can use algorithms based on evidence base as another one to unpack, but to deliver something that says, oh, you know, and I think you mentioned Raquel, like we just wanted the output being like red, yellow, green. You know, you're good. You're kind of in a warning zone. You need to surveil more, like wear the watch five times a day or, you know, take the measurement five times a day instead of three times a day. And then the other one is red, call your healthcare provider. And actually, 
the ideal state was that data is actually moving in the background, like the very detailed bits and bytes uh, <laughs> of information. The raw data is moving more to the provider side that is then alerting the provider, green, yellow, red. Is there something they have to do with this patient? Um, but I do agree something is important to deliver the patient because the other problem we've seen with technology that does get data on the human is that if nothing is returned to the human, it's this, you're just in the state of, I don't know, I don't understand. I haven't gotten confirmation whether it worked right or, you know, am I okay? It's kind of like when you go to the, a typical test and you have to wait sometimes three, five days, two weeks, biopsies are like that. And then you're just worrying the whole time. You know, your mind kind of, you know, goes on and you'll speculate. But I think it's important to think about the the data moving between people and who the people are that are involved in this situation, which I, I don't find is actually mapped out well <laughs> for a lot of technologies. They kind of just know what they want from it, but don't think about the complex environment that technology is actually going in. So what, what have you guys or you ladies have experienced in your work? Um, that kind of speaks to how people struggle with with thinking about the data that way and then thinking about, you know, the patient and kind of where they sit. Yeah. And with the this particular example, we did, thankfully, they had, like, before we got involved, done some testing regarding, like, um, they had put ECG levels and other heart rate levels that the patient, like, the participants themselves were like, yes, this is too, like, complicated to understand. We just kind of want a simple, yes, I'm good okay, maybe I can do like wear it more, like you said, Jen, or there's some kind of exercise or eating habits that I can change um, to help out, or I need to call my doctor and they can better explain. Um, But then we also kind of identified, yes, that patient is one side, but this data is still important. It's still valuable. And now you kind of have another user in the sense of the doctor and how they're going to interpret this data that's coming from this healthcare watch. What do they like what's important for them to know from that healthcare, like from the data that the watch is collecting and how is it going to help them to actually like treat their patients um, and diagnose them further or anything that, that they needed. Yeah. It's kind of, you have to think of uh, the users as different, different people, novel thing <laughs> uh, where a doctor would might want to have, um, all the information available to make their own inferences um, and not let the machine do the inferences. There might be different cases where they would like to give a better diagnosis quickly. But in this case, I, uh, they want to, let's say they want to pr- provide the inferences. Well, the patient might get data overload and would prefer like um, if their heart rate goes above 100, it just goes red. Uh, the number goes red. So that provides, this is bad <laughs> information. So, Yeah. And I think, you know, just to, for the audience, like we, we mentioned technology, we called it healthcare. And those, while the device itself could be very similar from the concept of fitness, you know, and kind of what we engage in outside of uh, very, very formal healthcare, that the raw data in the background may not be that different, but kind of the delivery of it and what it's intended to do. And you'll see that most of the time the watches come with an app and the app is loaded with a lot of other capability that uses the data coming from the tool. So in the healthcare sense, now you're dealing with something where not only do you need the formality, but you also need the quality control, uh, quality assessment of the data, because now like 
healthcare decisions are going to be made around this thing. So that it, it kind of ups the ante on the level of validation that's done. And we talk about like FDA approval as opposed to something that goes to market as a fitness tool. Like, you know, it sits more in the supplement domain than the, the prescription pharmaceutical domain as an, an analogy. But I do think that has to be thought through pretty well and, and identify the various users and what data goes to the various users. And it might need to be, pro- it clearly needs to be processed differently. Uh, it may be the same raw data, but again, the level of processing, the types of algorithms that are run, the type of evidence base, the limits to the interpretation. So I, I think that starts to get at a piece of what goes into telemedicine. So now you're talking about um, some other issues. Now, when the the user, the patient user, has to interface with the physician uh, or the medical provider, which can be many different levels, and they they call them like mid level medical per, uh, medical providers could be nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, you know, people who are medically trained and can kind of do the triage and work with, you know, a subject matter expert physician in the background. But what has been your experience or your thought process through what you see when the person wearing the technology, gathering the data, then has to interface with a physician? And maybe we're going to stay in the telehealth domain and say, you're not going to an in-office appointment. You know, you're going to do this through another element of a, of a technology tool. You know, the common one being like FaceTime, we could do Zoom, you know, um, I'm trying to think some of the other platforms that have popped up that I, even I've had healthcare done through. They, they all are very similar in terms of, you know, there's a video and an audio interface and uh, you kind of wait in a lobby till it's your turn for your appointment. So what do you think about kind of the complexity of in that environment? Because now you're layering elements of, of change and you're layering levels of technology. So maybe your your watch in this case, the the use case, your health te- your health watch got your data, but now you got to connect to the internet and get a face to face time. However, you're still going to be virtual. What do you think the layers are there that that increase complexity and maybe aversion to change? Well, we'll pick on the version to change. There is the the odd thing of doctors might being uh, not as trustworthy as the data that's coming in because they aren't physically touching it or physically measuring it, uh, which could so burn- you're thinking the doctors are questioning the data themselves, or the patient, or and or the patient also has questions about the data. Um, both. I was just picking on the doctors first. Okay. Um, okay. Um, from their perspective, so they might uh, be hesitant to diagnose something. Um, by, via just this data alone versus coming in and to provide a uh, more formal diagnosis in the office. Sure, maybe some of this data could create like the concept of a threshold. Like it's either via the accumulation of the data and kind of the, the consistency of the signal or finding finding a signal in the noise. Like a lot of what's collected just could be very, you know, the the normal kind of oscillating processes we have in our body in the background, whether it be like heart rate, respiratory rate, depends on what you're doing. But overall, you're looking for some baseline information that may indicate someone's having a health event or something related to their health happening that you say, now we have to move away from telehealth and just kind of surveilling you and monitoring you to, you know, a a more uh, rigorous interaction, which may include in person. But honestly, you know, we can lean on the fact of like in my past experience with spaceflight, touching the patient is not an option. Like, you, you know, you have to move about your toolkit 
in a different way. And some of the pandemic drove that as well. But even before the pandemic, what we had was probably a, a significant amount of unrecognized equity in the healthcare system in terms of if you live very remotely or you live in a very you know socioeconomically depressed area, you physically may not be able to get to healthcare. Um, and, and so some of these tools can be applied that way. But I think your point of Rachel, like knowing that where the limits are of the data you can collect from a telemedicine perspective versus when you have to shift to in like an inpatient interaction. But also I think that pushes on the industry to say, you know, you have to come up with tools that actually meet the criteria that we're, we're going to have trust. And, and that takes time to build. Again, I use the word validation before, and uh, you know, that kind of is a bit of a test of time once it's baselined as valid, it says, yes, we're no longer testing the test. It's delivering interpretable data. But now does it deliver interpretable quality data consistently enough that we would rely on it? So Rachel, in your experience, Raquel, in your experience, um, sorry, the the watch, you said people like were a little uneasy, even with the data collection. Did you get a sense that it was kind of a trust trust in technology issue or they just so were unso familiar, so unfamiliar with the the situation that they they really didn't didn't know what to do with it yeah i would say it was more like a trust in technology a lot of them mentioned to us you know oh i have my my grandkids my my kids themselves um my significant other kind of helped me out they always help me out with the internet stuff or a tablet or a laptop um some of them did, were more like um a customer like used to the internet just because they had just come out of retirement. So they had kind of used laptops and tablets and stuff for a while. Other ones of them either had been in retirement for a while, or even before, like when they were still in the workforce, they were kind of still book and pencil and paper writing. So um, I think it was just that, tr that lack of trust and technology in a lot of them, um, and not being sure like, that they could that they could just trust the data that they see right then and there. They had more experience with talking to a doctor. And I think when you add on that layer of like, even now they have the healthcare, like remote healthcare. And then plus now, instead of seeing their doctor face to face, they would have to see them through a tablet, through a laptop. Like even that would even spur on further problems of them even be able to get access to it. Because uh, I think some, some of the participants did like mention they have a laptop or a, a normal like desktop. Um, but like, again, some of them mentioned that they don't really use it or that they're not fam as familiar with it. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just more of like that lack of trust, lack of experience with it, I would say. Yeah, it's still pretty multi-layered, right? There's yeah. unfamiliarity and it's highly variable probably in, in the demographic we're talking about because you mentioned different f folks have experienced things at different rates in different environments. So it's like deploying something, thinking it can be used um, very evenly across a population is is always a miss, <laughs> a bad assumption. Um, to to really understand the people who need additional assistance, you know, the concept of not only do you need the watch, but you need to ensure that the person has access to the internet for a couple of reasons. One, for the watch to be able to deliver data anywhere, it's going to have to have some type of connection. Um, the other element is people's level of willingness to now have an interaction with a healthcare provider that's not hands-on. And what I'll say, you know, from just a recent personal experience with just going in for like a, you know, a, your annual exam to a primary care provider, more now than ever, it's, it's as if it's an interview. Um, there's, there's almost no hands-on other than, you know, they'll come in and 
you know, one of the healthcare staff will take your vitals. Um, so the doctor ha- has it in the chart, but the doctor sat, you know, at the desk, at the computer. And, and really it was a little bit of like a surprise, even in that case, like for a lot of what they do, you know, how much do they need to have hands-on contact or in person? I will say dealing with healthcare providers though, there is no substitute actually for, for really being able to see a person and that type, like the color of your skin, right? What the pallor, like how they're, and that's about blood flow. You know, this is like the health, the well being. What, what about the whites of your eyes? Like how, how labored is your breathing? Some subtleties that maybe, um, you know, might be challenged in a video conference. But, but Rachel, you made the point before that, you know, a lot of these things are to establish either a connection, you know, in terms of a relationship with a provider. And then you may need to follow up. But the other part is if you're being monitored because you have some sort of chronic health problem, which may be changing over time and changing in a bad way, that there's some threshold that you cross that then the doctor and the team are like, no, we need you in person. Like this was, we, it was safe and reasonable to manage your health that, you know, remotely, but now we're going to shift to in person because you seem to have like a step function change. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back. Um to the trust element and go to talk from like my personal experience and my family's personal experience with um, medicine in general. Like I personally, I just feel like I'm kind of in the dark. They kind of like, they take uh, vitals, but I don't know what they mean because they don't really tell me and they kind of just disappear into the ether. (laughs) I'm just like, what am I good? (laughs) I assume I'm good because you didn't tell me I'm dying. (laughs) Um, And then uh, my family had, some very unfortunate uh, misdiagnosis uh, and not, I I wouldn't say like not believing or thinking it's something else or conflicting um, diagnoses, which impacts your trust in the system in general. Yeah. So it's not just happening in telehealth, right? That, that is like um, something we've been battling in the healthcare system with communication and then with confidence and certainty, but the idea of, and there's many different versions of, of your story. And it's very, you know, um, it, it is a very emotional and kind of psychological thing to go through um, questioning whether the diagnosis or, or immediately feeling like I hear you, but I don't get it. I don't have a confidence in what you're saying. I'm not completely understanding how you got there or but I have things that are different than what you're describing, you know, when you you have these gaps of kind of being able to understand why your symptoms are outside this, the characteristics of what you're being diagnosed with. And, you know, let's just say, because we're going to talk in some broad strokes that, that those are a lot of the communication issues, but even in medicine, there's still a a significant amount of inter-individual variability and uncertainty and trying to get you close enough to a diagnosis because the diagnosis is really going to drive the treatment. When you mentioned before, Rachel, like the action, and I think you Raquel mentioned it, like what are you doing with this data and what do I do versus what do you, you know, patient, what do I do versus healthcare provider? What do you do with it? You know, how how does this all work? And I think sometimes it, it requires a bit of education, you know, with the patient and that's time and not everybody takes the time to communicate well. Um, And sometimes the interaction isn't designed for that, unfortunately, you know, and we have to kind of stop and say, you know, we are all humans here. You know, you you are thinking and feeling things as the patient and experience it. There are healthcare providers getting data and you're not getting feedback on a lot of it, or you don't understand how it was ruled in and ruled out as, you know, meaningful to your diagnosis. And 
those things actually take time. And I find like our structure with, you know, 15 minute allocations, I won't even call them appointments because <laughs> the appointment itself varies wildly, but, but like the allocation is 15 minutes for for the physician to come in there and deal with you in that, in that interaction and then have to move on to another patient. And the other, the team of healthcare providers should be filling in some of those gaps. And a lot of them are just about doing things to you and not explaining why. And, and it gets very unwieldy at times. I think those things drive lack of confidence and lack of trust. Now, the complexity of adding technology where you're not even sure of the quality or the way this thing operates is really something that is challenging. <laughs> I think there's rabbit agreement out in the hallway. Um, but it's, it's one where I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to try to help people do the change. And for a couple of reasons, one access to healthcare could be much more efficient. Um, and we could be getting healthcare to people, not only in the sense of getting numbers and kind of vital signs off of them, but actually getting them to action that they need to do or validation that what they're doing is right. You know, those lifestyle modifications you have made have made a difference in your biomarkers. They're going in the direction of better. And here's, here's the, how that we're going to reinforce that positive behavior versus oh, we go to the doctors and get blood work every six months, one year or whatever it is, or someone measures my vitals. Like it's very, there's a lot of distance between like confirmatory data points. Um, I usually work in a world where like every 30 days, like we're at least reestablishing baseline. We're talking to folks about biomarkers that mean that you're on the right track or you're not. And it's time to change things a little bit to see if we can get you back on the right track. Because it, in my world, right, with the premiums on prevention, like not having the bad incidents happen. It, the concept on earth is prevention. I, we just don't tend to act that way. There's, that's a whole nother probably assortment of podcasts to dissect out why. <laughs> but in the realm of tele, what I will say with telehealth, you are, we are much better positioned to actually to be more responsive to change in people. But again, they have to engage it and they got to understand their role, which maybe they thought of themselves in a different role when they were just going. And I, I modified it with Justin. I shouldn't have. When you're going to the office and you think that that experience is going to deliver you something to do that's going to make a difference versus you're not relating that to the way technology may be able to accomplish the same goal. And, and that's a trust issue. But at this point, there's a lot of work being done to say, no, the technology you're wearing may actually be getting higher quality, at least more dense data, like a lot more quantity of data, but that actually helps people understand signal, right? It, it helps paint a better picture of you if you can kind of get continuous monitoring, which is not happening in a single office visit. Those are just snapshots. So I think telehealth and technology that supports telehealth can help us really identify changes that take people in a direction of bad or you know toward disease away from health earlier, but we got to know what to look for. And that happens on the medical provider user side, which is a team of people, not just a physician. But we got to design for that. And there's a lot of data flow that's being discussed here that actually could be a positive feedback loop and help people gain trust and understand the, imp the quality improvement. Um, or if we're going to keep it as a you know this box where people don't understand what's happening or how data is moving or how it's being interpreted, I don't think we're ever going to bridge that gap to trust. I do think to both your points that demographically, there are people who are much more aligned with using technology um, benefiting from the use of technology are much more engaged in it. And those people can move a little bit more seamlessly into the telehealth operating domain. Do you get a sense that, you know, when we're thinking about um, 
the comparison between traditional healthcare and telehealth that the that we need to kind of bridge that gap and there are ways to do that or do you think you know it's something that will just naturally occur over time because we're so much more technology centric now i think with the technology increase there will be a a, a general shift to telehealth particularly in the younger demographics who are busy working and don't want to take time off um but it depends on the accessibility of the technology in the lower socioeconomic groups. Um, there is the library, but that's you might not want to use that because it's not a secure connection and you don't want to. Well, it's not private either. <laughs> yeah, it's not private. <laughs> um, so, but that might be your only access to tech, that type of technology. So as uh, things in the socioeconomic world change, they'll probably move towards um, more telehealth. Uh, that, at least that's my view currently. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think um, obviously like younger generations who grew up with the technology are going to be more susceptible to accept it and want to use it. And, you know, just because I think now with like working at home, we've realized like those five, 10 minute drives to the office or to like the doctor's office, like they can pile up and take up your day. <laughs> and then before you know it, like it's six o'clock or five o'clock and, you know, you have to start doing your home stuff. And so I think younger generations would be more susceptible and open to accepting telehealth and telemedicine. Um, but there's also some younger, even in younger populations, they're depending on their socioeconomic status, like they don't have the opportunity, like to have access to to internet like they either have to go to their office to get internet or to like a public space and there's that lack of like privacy and you know i think whenever and every time it's scary when you accept like a public wi-fi and it says you know other people might be able to see your data and you're like oh should i accept it should i not <laughs> so yeah. yeah i think if if we change and if stuff like for those like more disadvantaged populations and more opportunity becomes available for them to have trusted access to internet or trusted just access to telehealth services. Um, I think the quicker and sooner we can kind of get on that, the better it is to kind of bridge that gap um, and move forward to like accepting telehealth as like traditional or seeing it in the same area as traditional healthcare. Yeah, for both of you, that's, those are great points. And that kind of really gets to the heart of telehealth is not one thing. Like well, again, it's an ecosystem of things that have to work together to provide the infrastructure to allow telemedicine to occur, <laughs> or whatever terminology we use to be like the overarching term versus kind of the the nested terms that allow the big picture to happen. And I think you know both of you pulled on some important things. It would be like, well, if we want to clearly use telemedicine you know, getting data on an individual that can help their health be assessed and then action being given to that individual, either, you know, you're good, stay where you are, or we need to change or you need to come in, but it needs to be in a bigger framework. Like, and there are some of those problem pieces of that are not being addressed. I, I can't say at all. I, I haven't done a landscape, you know, business landscape in a while on it, because I, I do know for like in areas where they're doing global medicine, they're building like these health pods you know, like where someone can go into them and have a full assessment and virtually interact with healthcare providers. And the pod is the thing, you know, that is connected to the internet or, you know, in, in, via various means, you know, even via satellite. 
And the idea is that you didn't, the person didn't have to have it in their home because what, you know, whether you're talking about uh, a socioeconomically depressed urban area in the United States or a village in sub-Saharan Africa, the problem is still the same in terms of accessibility. You know, it blows your mind that, you know, you think clearly they can't be similar. You're like in a lot of ways when it comes to connectivity, there, there are things that are exactly the same. Um, how you may solve those problems and kind of the nearness of solutions is a little different, but these health pods, nevertheless, make sense to me in terms of they are deployable. And it's the concept of like, to me, Rachel, when you were talking about the libraries, I was like, it was so genius of putting publicly available, you know, Wi-Fi and internet connection and computers into the library system to give people who wouldn't have it at their home or had to, you know, rate uh, to your point, like drive very far to go get access. So, you know, if you started using that same concept, but now we know you have to privatize it and make it secure. So someone can actually engage in something like, you know, a, a health evaluation in, in a public space, like a library. Um, that would be one of those pieces of the solution that could address things other than the specific technologies. I mean, I think we're very tech heavy, you know, you come in like watches and they're called buttons and they want, you know, things on your ear, things on your neck, on your chest. <laughs> I wear rings and watches. They, they all get a ton of data. Um, but now to have the conversation with another human being, even if it's virtually um, needs a private space, it needs, you know, an internet connection that is supported and reliable. You know, we were worried this morning, even with the podcast, you're like, we're all working from different locations and different weather conditions and just different, I don't know what, it, I have no explanation for what the internet does on a daily basis in my home. You know, um, I, I'm not an expert home IT person. I, <laughs> I have not achieved that in the past three years whatsoever. But um, it's like, could you imagine during a critical discussion with your physician and your internet cuts out, which I'm sure has happened, you know, that, that doesn't help anybody. So the infrastructure to facilitate really the concept of telehealth and telemedicine is probably less than well described and only pieces of it are being worked on. Again, like, you know, I think from a big integrative function, there's lots of aspects to that. And again, I think the discussion of who is your users, who are your users, let's use the right grammar. Um, and, and what do each of those users require, you know, to interact? And then how might that change depending on what you're trying to use telehealth for, you know, baseline medical care, kind of preventive medical care, maybe one thing, but treatment of a disease process, um, something chronic, maybe, and it's slightly different. And then also, I think both of you pulled on like, what is the action? Because at times, if the signal is red, you know, your biomarker X is out of bounds too far. Now you need to call 911, right? Now you need to get, but do you have are you within a radius of actually getting the care associated with making that type of an emergency call? You know, that's an yeah. interesting dilemma. Yeah. And then there's an argument of saying you can, uh, instead of only calling when it's red, you can call if it's accelerating at a rate that could get you red. So you will have time to call the ambulance before you might expire or something like that. Um, Grim days on uh, the Human Honesty podcast today. <laughs> well, I think it's an exciting opportunity because right now people are at home. Things are changing. They just may not know other than when they feel symptoms. And, and you know, people are calling 911 
or calling their physician, uh, which can be hard to get through. I mean, I think we've all experienced like, how exactly do I crack the nut on trying to actually talk to a doctor, um, you know, and get your message heard or whatever number of things it, it gets complex. But, uh, you know, rate of change is something else to monitor in someone if you know that they're they're already predisposed. But there, there's a lot of dis- different signals to, to read. But I think overall, there are components of telehealth that are active today and we're kind of familiar with them. But this overarching approach would require kind of someone to come in and try to integrate and give a bigger picture. And a lot of times we rely on big infrastructure to do that, typically run, you know, say on a government level, whether it be, you know, city, state um, or federal. Um, But this is one that should grow out of the concept of the healthcare industry. Right. Um, And kind of broaden the concept. I know a lot of local hospital systems now often advertise telehealth as a very strong component and talk about the benefits of like re- reduced time to get access to to a healthcare provider to have your interaction at least get the kickoff visit, you know instead of you know we're not only you're discussing your symptoms to to a healthcare provider but they can actually get some some data on you to make decisions about how urgent your care is which is actually a form of triaging which we typically do in person. So do you think like there's a a bigger goal here for the healthcare system to grow in that way and you know, how do you see uh, potentially like the role of like a hospital system in one area versus something a little bit more broadly applicable so that we can deal with some of the healthcare equity issues? Yeah, I personally believe that um, the federal level has a responsibility to these populations to protect um, for massive healthcare issues such as um, the COVID-19 pandemic, that they had a responsibility to act to protect the citizens overall. But I agree with your point with the local healthcare. They can, they should be able to grow this telehealth to support their populations and provide care um, to people who might not get it, or and particularly like rural areas. Uh, I've been watching some great TikToks about rural medicine, and like it's really funny because it's like. I gotta do this MRI, but I don't have any indicator. Or not, um, it was a CAT scan, sorry. Uh, but I don't have any indicator. Gotta go brew some up because <laughs> they don't have access to it in this rural area. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is a lot of a lot of highly variable components of of healthcare that that are not well described. I mean, we get the general sense there are. You hear these issues. But exactly how we might go about using technology to address these things isn't, I don't have a lot of clarity on that. I kind of see a lot of point solutions, but not someone coming in, like addressing the more holistic issue, which, you know, I mean, that that's something that it has to be put out on the table. And I'm sure there's some, some communities, and, and I mean that not by like a geographic location, but like communities of subject matter experts and healthcare people who might be working at a lot of non-government organizations tend to go that way, like foundations. So Raquel, with the, the, the healthcare technology you've touched, do you see like a lot of it being like point solution driven versus kind of more architecture driven from a healthcare capability? Um, yeah, it's definitely more point solution. We had another experience with another client where they were kind of trying to solve more issues that were more pertinent to a certain clinic versus thinking like of a universal like and it's hard to do like a one-size-fits-all for kind of like telehealth experiences and even just like 
any kind of remote patient or even just using AI, because every, I think every clinic runs differently. It's going to have a different demographic of patients depending on the area and kind of like how that affects their health and what kind of symptoms and stuff they usually come in with. So um, I think there might not be like a one size fits all, but there can be like components and certain strategies and stuff that can be taken that could be kind of universally applied and thought of um, when we're like applying telehealth and telemedicine to different hospitals, different clinics and different areas and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's some great, great insights. And I agree with you that with all the technology and the growing base of technology we have to do a variety of different things and the concept of artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning capabilities, being able to kind of synthesize big data, uh, you know, if we set the parameters right to Rachel, your point, like what is the yellow, what is the red and, 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 can, and do we personalize it? Do we really start to understand the individual and when they're leaning in those directions versus just kind of the epidemiological approach, which kind of gets you in, a, I always talk about like get you on the board, uh, get you in a certain place. And then you can, you have to know the individual where they are and it may be about them moving. But, but I think Raquel, to your point, um, there's a lot of capability that could be, uh, you know, brought together in different ways to meet the needs of whether it be a clinic or a patient. And that takes subject matter expert. This is where I don't believe we'll ever not, you know, this concept of, well, the machine learning will know it. Ultimately, the human still needs to be in the loop. And at some point, more than in the loop is not just a patient, but as someone doing the architecture, whether it be the architecture for the clinic or the architecture for the hospital system or the architecture for the state, you know, given the geographic challenges of any given state, um, and then no less the nation. So there's a ton of work to be done, but I'm, I'm very um, impressed, I think, with where technology has gone and the focus on health. I think it's been very well, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of thought has been put into you know, where, where the important things are to measure. And there's kind of like some areas are coming out with a little more consensus, but overall, I'm, I'm very optimistic about what it's going as like, but if kind of it, 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 the spectrum of point solutions at this point, I think if we start, you know, driving toward capabilities where they're um, again, like synthesizing those capabilities into packages that make sense, whether again, it be at a patient level, a, a clinic level or a hospital system level are different discussions, but I've been impressed. And I, I think change was definitely forced by the pandemic and people getting more comfortable with interacting virtually. We should capitalize on that and, and continue to grow the trust. Like, and this is about, you know, proving time over time that these things are value added and people are actually acting on them. You know, I think getting the feedback both from the patient user groups, the healthcare user groups, um, that where are these things working well versus where do they need improvement? And um, I think that kind of feedback loop would be really healthy for the country to, to engage in on, you know, big like National Institute of Health level, you know, or human health services level of evaluating the role of telehealth and kind of a strategy at the national level to say, how do we want to engage in telehealth, including all those components of telemedicine that we kind of touched on today? So this has been a great conversation and I'm very optimistic. So, and I think we will continue to evaluate new technology, whether it be a point solution or an architecture solution with different companies. And I know um, in my, my area of work that I'll continue refining it for 
for space flight. And um, a big focus of with space flight is the spin back to Earth. So we do a lot that happens in space flight and they, we just don't have the same luxuries that we have on Earth, right? There is no resupply in exploration class missions that we even have today in low Earth orbit. So, you know, our refinement of telehealth for space can actually, I think, really impact Earth's capability to deploy it and act on it. So it, it's nothing but opportunity for me. I'm very excited. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's a very exciting field to be able to design and architect in this point. And I think it'll be very beneficial for both the user population and, well, not the user population, but the patient population. And even like the doctor population, healthcare providers, um, that like the pandemic, there's been um, current issues with the burnout and doctors and, but that's an entirely different subject, but uh, but I agree. That's an area that it can also address with workload management for the healthcare workers because significant populations of people who are needing medical care. And it, it definitely took a toll on the on the healthcare providers because they're human too, right? They're having health events too. Um, I think we forget that sometimes about them. So that's really, that's a good insight. Yeah. So it'll, I project, I could be wrong, but I project it'll be very beneficial to both um, people uh, the patients and the providers and be a healthy change. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. This has been a really good discussion, really exciting things to look forward to. Um, so this has been episode nine of the human odyssey, a human centered podcast. Our podcast is available online at suffixsynergistics.com slash podcasts and is available to stream on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and Google play podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our social media platforms where we post a lot of more human-centered content. Uh, We're on platforms like LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you liked the episode, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more content. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic Smart.